Wow, what a song. What a, there is so much truth in that song we were just singing. Can we give our worship team just another round of applause? What a, that was just a terrific song. So much truth in what we're singing right there. My name is Jesse Ryder. I'm the uh, City Center Campus Pastor and the Next Steps Pastor. Before we start today, if you are a tech person, I want to draw your attention to something. If you have a, a smartphone or an iPad or, and you bring that to church normally, we have updated our app. So if you go to the Crossroads app or go to your, your Google Play or the App Store, wherever you go to get the app, you can download. We have a brand new app. And here's what's really cool is if you would like, you can actually take notes uh, during this sermon, during the weekend messages. You can take notes right on the app. You are able to do that. So there's all sorts of event information. You can watch the live stream, all sorts of great things. If that's kind of foreign language to you, don't worry, nothing else is changing. This is just something we're adding. Just for those that enjoy that and kind of those techie people, hey, jump on board. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. We'll be all right. So like I said, uh, I just got back from Cambodia just a couple days ago. I got to go on our missions team here. We went to Cambodia, and it's just a wonderful time. There was a busy schedule. We did some, some village outreaches, some uh, youth conference, and we did this soccer camp there. And I've coached soccer for a long time. I've done a lot of soccer camps. I've led a lot of different camps. But there's nothing quite like a Cambodian soccer camp, mainly because you have one field and about, we had almost 500 campers in two days. So in, on one soccer field, we had, you know, our team was out there. We're running drills, having a blast. We have about 500 different campers over two days out there. And then we did a big gospel presentation at the end. So it, it was a wonderful time. So if I seem just a little off, my sleep schedule's been a little weird. I, just like in the middle of the afternoon, I just need like this power nap. And then I can't get out of this power nap because I'm used to sleep. You know, the schedule's about 11 hours different. So I'm back. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to be here. Uh, but that, that's where I've been. It's, it's good to see everybody tonight. And while I was away, we actually set some fun records at the city center. We just did our 500th load of laundry at the city center. Really cool thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are, we are so grateful for the team that has been serving there and been serving so faithfully there and just doing a wonderful job. And we've been saying this is a, a physical need that we can meet that can kind of spur on conversations and relationships with people who are in, in the need of that. And so just an exciting number, exciting thing to kind of celebrate and be a part of there. So certainly we are, we're excited to be a part of that and kind of walk alongside those people at the city center and just doing some great things there. So thank you to the team. Thank you to the team of people who have been serving there and has been a part of that. While I was away, we started a book study in Habakkuk. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Habakkuk, uh, we're going to be there tonight in chapter 2. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, we're going to start there. And Habakkuk is really an interesting small little book. Uh, about four parts to Habakkuk. And you see that kind of Habakkuk's question to God about what's going on around him and why is God allowing these certain things to happen. And then you, we see God's response to Habakkuk. And then we see this kind of dialogue back and forth about why, why God is doing things a certain way and what Habakkuk is anticipating and, and he's kind of watching and waiting. We see these, these responses to each other. And today we're going to look at kind of this response from God to Habakkuk about the, the Babylonians that he will be using to kind of remove some leadership in this area. And then in chapter 3 it goes on and you'll see kind of Habakkuk's prayer of praise for what God is going to do in their area. Last week, Pastor Dave had this quote, I just want to share it with you, about waiting. He said, in our spiritual journey, we all face seasons of waiting. Times where it seems that God is distant and withdrawn. The question isn't, will we wait? It's, will we wait passively or purposefully? 
In moments of waiting, God isn't just working on a solution for us. He is working in us to realign our focus and reinforce our faith. You know, I heard that. I thought, that, you know, that, is, that is some powerful words there about, about waiting. And certainly as, as we talk about waiting, you know, it can reveal a lot about a person. A lot of our life is really spent waiting on different things. Statistics say about 28 minutes. If you travel international, you travel by plane, you'll spend about 28 minutes waiting for security. I can attest that is a, that is a pretty true number. All right, yeah, you'll spend about 21 minutes waiting for your significant other to get ready to go out. Now, this is on average, so for some of you that may be a little more. We're not going to name names. We're just going to let that one go. You spend about 38 hours a year waiting in traffic. <clears throat> 38 hours a year. You spend about six months of your life waiting for things. Right, so while you are waiting, you can see a lot about a person. A few years ago, my wife invited me to go Black Friday shopping with her. Now, I don't mind shopping. It's fine. I'm not one of like the die hard, like I know every deal, I know like every place I need to be. But I, you know, I thought, okay, like, this will be fun. We'll go do it together. I, I didn't really do it a lot growing up. So be, let me go see what it's like. And so we decided the first place we needed to go, needed to go, was Walmart. And so we go to Walmart, and we're just waiting in line. And I don't even know what we're really waiting in line for, but we're waiting in line. And so we're talking, and there's another line kind of almost running, not quite parallel, but just near us. And I was trying to look and see, like, what are they waiting for? And there's just lines of people everywhere. And so I asked the person next to us, I said, hey, what are you, uh, what are you waiting in line for? And they're like, oh, we, uh, we're waiting to get towels and washcloths. Now, I'm not one to judge someone else's purchases, if you need towels and washcloths and you're going to get up at like 3 in the morning to do that, by all means, get towels and washcloths. And so I'm looking, and I come to an interesting equation. As I'm watching the depth of that line and the amount of towels and washcloths, I come to something. There are less towels and washcloths than there are people in line. So I thought, this is going to turn out quite interesting. As the, the, the towels and washcloths continue to decrease, the line continues to increase. Well, this is, this is going to be good. And so I keep watching, and there's about, you know, six or seven washcloths left, and then, you know, each line is taking one or two sets. And then a guy from about the middle, maybe 20 people back, just walks up to the front and grabs the last set. Now, everybody else in that line is now very offended. They had spent so much time waiting for this, they thought they were now entitled to this washcloth. And so they begin to yell at this man for taking their towels and their washcloth. He tries to justify it by saying he was waiting in line too and that you know, it's not really illegal for him to cut in line. He can do it. And it begins to get this verbal kind of spat about who gets this towel. The people who are waiting in line and their turn was next or the guy who thought, you know what? Who cares about the line? I need a washcloth. And so it gets this verbal disagreement and nearly gets physical before someone steps in and kind of separates everything. And so as we look through Habakkuk, certainly... He's waiting on something much greater than a towel and washcloth, right? The issue he's waiting is, is much more severe, much more dire. But you can really learn a lot about someone when you're watching them wait, right? We see in Habakkuk, he's, he's waiting on God to act. You know, he, he wants God to respond to him. He, he's just, he wants an answer. But then God gives his answer, and it wasn't quite the answer he wanted, 
in his mind, he thinks the answer that God is providing may actually make the situation worse. He says, do you, do you know how bad these people are? If you bring these people in, they're going to do worse things. They're going to make the situation worse. Right? And, and sometimes when we're waiting, right, it, it kind of like amplifies our emotions. Right? And maybe, you know, if you've got this, this big thing coming up, and you just feel this, this sense of anxiousness about it. Right? And the longer you have to wait, the more anxious you get. Or maybe you're nervous. Right? The longer you have to wait, maybe the, the more nervous you get about what might happen. Or maybe those aren't the correct. Maybe it's, maybe it's worry. That the longer you have to wait on something, the bigger your worries get. Right? And you begin to worry more and more and think more and more and make these situations bigger and bigger. And you kind of dream up a worst case scenario of what might happen while you're waiting. Maybe, maybe it's excitement. You know, maybe it's kind of that anticipation that you just can't wait for this thing to happen because you're so excited for it to happen. And so while you're waiting, it tends to intensify your emotions and your thoughts about what you're waiting for. And so as we're looking through this, you can kind of see Habakkuk is, is speaking with passion because he, he cares about his people. He cares about the people around him, and he, he sees it's, it's just full of sin. It's not going how he thought it was going to go. And so the, the waiting has intensified his emotions. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2 of verse 4 says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's stop here for a second. I want to show you a couple of things. You see the phrase puffed up? The Hebrew word is, is a fall. It actually means like to swell or swollen. This is actually where we get our phrase, like, big-headed from. Like, if someone's conceited about something, say, oh, they have a really big head about this. This is where it comes from, is this idea. And so God is addressing Habakkuk and talking about this, this attitude of pride. And so when we think about pride in our culture, it's so easy to get caught up in our own abilities, our own talents, our own resources, our own things, right, and think that we've got things under control. We've got this. We're going to be okay. Right, and we begin to remove God from the equation. I can do this on my own. I don't need God right now. My own abilities will be sufficient. My own talents will be enough. My own resources will get me through this. I don't need God. Now, I know he's the giver of those things, but I don't need him. And that, that is the definition of pride. Right, when you believe you no longer need God because you can do it by yourself. And so we see this, this idea of this, this big-headed this swollen head, puffed up. Right? Where it's this attitude that says, you know, I don't need God in my life right now. You know, I, don't, I don't need him to be a part of this. And unfortunately what happens is we kind of change who God is. God doesn't change, but in our minds we kind of change who he is. He becomes this, like, the savior of suburbia. Right? Where we are sufficient. We've got enough things. We've got enough stuff. We can take care of it. And so we kind of use God almost like a genie. Right, that if I'm in need of something or if I believe this is beyond my abilities or beyond my talents or beyond my resources, maybe then I will call upon God. We try and, and change and manipulate who God is. Now, God is not changing, but we change our view of that. And we only want to kind of call out to God when it's convenient or when we feel like, well, it's really necessary now. 
And so no longer are we living this life devoted to worshiping God, we're using him you know, kind of a, on an as-needed basis. And there's a danger in that, right? That, that danger comes from, listen, you are nothing without God. We have nothing without God. He is the giver of talents, the giver of abilities, giver of resources. And so when you think that you can do this without God, you're pridefully mistaken. And so what we see is this kind of warning, and we're going to read through several different warnings about the Babylonians and kind of the, this prideful, arrogant attitude they had. But in the flip side of verse 4 is kind of the, the contrast there. It says, the righteous shall live by faith. Now the word faith is the word enuma. It means nourishing, to make firm or to strengthen. Think of words like faithfulness or loyalty or perseverance. Right? These are words that kind of describe this faith. And you see it's kind of the contrast of this, this attitude of, I don't need God in anything I'm doing. I'm good enough. I can take care of myself. I'm strong enough. I'm big enough. I'm powerful enough. As opposed to, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, R.C. Sproul said, one who lives by faith is a righteous person in the sight of God. The righteous live by trust. In other words, the thing that characterizes the righteous person above all else is an abiding trust in God and his promises. Because righteous people trust the Lord. They continue to believe him even when he seems slow to act. They do not just believe in God, they believe God. Because they believe the Lord, they are faithful to him and they obey him. Truly, though imperfectly, out of their deep loyalty to him. So we see this kind of contrasting personality between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The way of the righteous understands their need for God in their life. The way of the wicked says, I don't need anyone. The way of the righteous says, God, my life is devoted to you. The way of the wicked says, my life is devoted to me. And you're going to see that this kind of wrestling match, this mindset of, is, it, is my life about me or is my life about God? And you're going to see this, this, this kind of just back and forth about what is your life really going to be about? Who is your life really going to be devoted to? We see this, the righteous shall live by faith, mentioned three other times found in the New Testament. Romans 1.17 says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Hebrews 10, 38, but my righteousness, one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. These verses are speaking truth to our lives. Life-changing truth. In fact, one of the most famous life-changing truths that we see is from Martin Luther. Before Martin Luther was a monk, he was in law. And one, one day he was taking a trip to go see some friends, and a huge thunderstorm struck and he was kind of stuck in the middle of this thunderstorm he crawls under a rock and he begins to call out to the saint anne he begins to ask for help and guidance to save him from the storm he'd believe that he was not able to call out to god he needed a mediator to do that and he had promised saint anne he said saint anne if you save me from this storm i will become a monk i will study god's word I will devote my life. And he was saved from the storm, 
And so in doing so, he kept his word and became a monk. And as he did that, as he went through this study, he began to try and cover up for all of his sins by whipping himself, beating himself, hurting himself, trying to get rid of these sins in his life. But he just felt inadequate all the time. Felt like he could not do enough to warrant going to heaven, to warrant talking to God, to warrant just even having that conversation. That he was never good enough to do that. And he was just terrified of the wrath of God because of his mistakes. And it's through these verses that Martin Luther's life was really changed. Understanding that it was, it was by faith. It was by faith that God would change people. That the righteous shall live by faith. And he, as he began studying what, what Paul had wrote in the New Testament and even from Habakkuk here, he said, his quote was, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. He began to understand that the righteousness of God was from God. That God would, would work through us and in us. And there would be life change because of that. Now some people will appear to live by faith but are not quite there. Maybe easily distracted. Maybe, maybe they, they live by you know, kind of Christian activities where they, they do devotions, they go to church, they pray sometimes, but not because of faith, not because of devotion to God, but more of obligation. They feel like they're supposed to. Like this is what they have to do. In order to get to heaven, I have to do these Christian things. Or maybe some appear to live by faith, but it's, they try and do it through works. Or if I do enough good things, it will cover up the bad things. Or I just feel like I'm, I'm obligated to do these good things that are in front of me. Or, or maybe it's, you know, I'll praise God. As long as I'm feeling good, I'll, I'll praise God. Or as long as my circumstances are beneficial to me, I'd be willing to praise God. And so we see this is, this is not devotion to God. These are circumstantial things in which we try and have a role in that. And so the, the righteous shall live by faith is really this call for us to be devoted followers of Christ. Knowing that imperfection is still there, but to be a devoted follower. And in verse 5, it continues on in Habakkuk chapter 2. In verse 5, it says, His greed, or moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And so what we see is, is this comparison of this, this, this selfishness, this greed that is just running rampant around them. Comparing the greed to that of a drunkard to just wanting as much wine as he could have. To Sheol and just collecting all the bodies and not caring how, about how many, but just wanting as much as it can have. Almost beyond comprehension for us. And so we're going to see what we read next is this contrast, these warnings, these woes is what they call them, about selfish living. And so there are really five different woes that we're going to read through. Now what is a woe? A woe is a phrase expressing kind of strong dissatisfaction and immense sympathy to the point of intense judgment. All right, so we're going to read through five woes. And what's interesting, as you read through these woes, it's a different literary form than a lot of the text. 
It's almost this like taunting, mocking song. And you're going to see that at the end of each woe, there's kind of this, what's going to happen to these people? What's going to happen to the people who are living their life like this? Now certainly these, these woes are directed to the Chaldeans, right? The Babylonians. But you're going to find that as we study these woes, as we break down these woes, it's going to be very, very much to us. Certainly it was a specific audience, but that culture is still kind of is going to be relevant to us as well. So let me give you the five woes, and we're going to break them down individually. Woe number one in, in chapter two, verses six, seven, and eight, is a woe against selfishness. Woe against selfishness. Number two, in verses 9, 10, and 11, is a woe against selfish desires. Number three is against violence for selfish fame, verses 12, 13, and 14. Number four is against sinful pleasures, verses 15 and 16. And then the fifth one is against idolatry, verses 18 and 19. Now we're going to go back through, we're going to work through each one of those individually and kind of see what, what is the warning really about and even though it's addressed to the Babylonians, you're going to find it is still very relevant to us right now. Let's start with selfishness. Verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now this is, this is that mentality of, you know what, I will do whatever I want to do. I will take whatever I want to take. And certainly in the Babylonian culture, looting and pillaging of the villages was very common. This mindset of I'm going to go in, I'm going to grab whatever I want. It doesn't matter who owns it. It doesn't matter if someone has it. If I want it, I grab it. Right, and this, this, becomes, this begins like this sense of entitlement. Right, this, this still exists in our culture today. Right, this sense of entitlement. It doesn't matter if you own it. It doesn't matter if someone else has it. If I want it, then I think I should have it. Right, and we, we see this is kind of the developing. All of these kind of stem from this one. Stem from that, this selfish entitlement. And we, as you wrestle through this, you're going to see that all of these kind of have this, this selfishness, this self-centeredness behind the, the warning. You know, it reminds me of a story I heard about a mom and, and two young boys. And she was making pancakes for her young boys. And they began to argue about who was going to eat first. Who was going to get the first pancake? Who was going to be the one to take the first bite? And just back and forth about these, who was going to have the first bite? They're both going to get pancakes. But it really became who's going to get it first? Who's going to get the first pancake? And the mom, just trying to break up the argument, trying to stop the argument, says, hey, what do you guys think Jesus would do if he was sitting here at this table with us? She says, I bet he would be willing to let the other person have the first pancake. I bet he would do that. And the younger brother looks at the older brother and says, you know what? Why don't you be Jesus right now? <laughs> right? It's, it's that kind of mentality we live our lives with. Why don't you kind of act like Jesus? I'm going to get what I want. You do that Jesus thing. Let me get what I want. It's that selfish mentality that kind of permeates throughout the rest of what we're going to talk about. That idea of, well, it doesn't really matter who it affects as long as I feel good or I get what I want. 
And so it, it's that sense of entitlement, that sense of attitude that's going to kind of construct the next couple of them. And so the second one we see is the selfish desires. But before we get to selfish desire, I want to show you the response. Kind of at the end of that woe, there's a bit of a warning about what might happen. You'll see in verse 7, it says, Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. It's basically saying, listen, all those people you have pillaged, all those people you have stolen from, they're going to band together and come back and do what you did to them. And in fact, the image it kind of gives in verse 7 when it talks about arising is that of a snake. Oh, it's actually the word to bite. So imagine, you know, it's, it's the image of you provoke a snake enough, eventually it's going to bite. The same thing is true here. If you provoke these people enough, eventually they're going to strike back. Eventually they're going to bite back. The second one we see is that of selfish desires. In verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. See, this, this is the idea that they thought they were untouchable. The phrase nest on high is the idea that if I have my nest way up here, no one else can bother me. I'm above the law. I don't have to worry about anything else. I am over here, away from everything else. You cannot bother me. I can do what I want. I can bother you. You can't bother me. Right? I'm above the law. It doesn't matter. I have the freedom to do what I want. There will be no repercussions for me. If I want it, I will take it. It doesn't matter if I own it. It doesn't matter if a store owns it. It doesn't matter anything. This, this is really the mentality of theft. Right? Where I'm above the law, it doesn't matter if there's a law against it. It doesn't matter if it's illegal. It doesn't matter if someone else owns it. It doesn't matter if I have the funds for it or not. If I want it, I take it. And theft is interesting because there was a report over one year, $13 billion of stuff is stolen from retailers. $13 billion. It comes out to about $35 million a day is lost, is stolen from retail stores. Now, when I was younger, I actually worked in a retail store, and at the store I was at, they did not have a security guard or security team. It was left to kind of the, the team members to go and address situations. And so I was a young guy on staff there, and so usually I would be the one to get the call, like, hey, we, we have a situation. And so there was one day where they said, hey, oh, we, there's some suspicious activity in the shoe department. I said, okay. So I kind of snuck my way over the shoe department, kind of just was like peeking through the aisles, and then eventually I saw a group of people who were taking off their old shoes and putting on the new shoes. Now, if you're in the shoe department, that's, that's a normal thing for people to do. That's how you try on shoes. The next thing was not normal. They would take off the old shoes, or take, take off the old shoes and put them in the shoe box where the new shoes were, had previously been, and then put the shoe box back on the shelf cut the tags off the new shoes, and now it looks like they have these shoes. They essentially traded for shoes. Now, I saw it happen. I watched them do it. I watched them take off their old shoes. I watched them take the new shoes out of the box and put the new shoes on, cut the tags off the new shoes. I watched them put the old shoes back in the box, back on the shelf. I've watched all of it. Now, the policy at the store was you cannot ask anyone any questions until they set foot out of the door. 
because only once they step foot out of the door is it actually theft. At this point, it's not ideal, but it's not theft. And so I continue to just kind of follow them around, just, you know, I have to make sure, maybe, maybe they were gonna take them up to the cashier and take them off in line and just kind of put them on, you know, maybe that's what they were gonna do. So I just have to make sure, kind of follow these procedures, but they didn't go to the cashier. In fact, they walked right out the front door. So I followed them out the front door. I got to the park, and I said, hey, excuse me. That's all I said. I said, hey, excuse me. They turned around and lo looked at me and said, we did not steal these shoes. <laughs> I thought to myself, one, yes, you did. I physically watched you do it. Two, yes, yes, you did. I physically watched you do it. Like, you can't, you can't lie about it. I didn't say that anyways. And so we kind of looked at each other. They probably know that I know. I certainly know they stole the shoes. And then they began to run. And I thought to myself, two thoughts. One, I could chase them down, tackle them, take off the shoes, walk back into the store with these shoes like a, like a war hero, like coming in, like holding the shoes, like I've done it, I've caught them. Or two, I could not do that. And so I opted for number two because there's a lot of them and one of me, uh, you know, it, it could have gone a variety of ways, so I opted not to do that. But it's that mentality of, you know, I like those shoes. I want those shoes. I'm taking those shoes. Now, I don't have the funds for those shoes. I'm not gonna kind of buy those shoes as everybody else is doing. I'm just gonna take them because I want them. And it's that mentality that begins to destroy a culture. Right? That selfish mentality of, I don't care that it's yours. I don't care that you have this. I don't care. I want it. I take it. And if you go on and you see kind of at the end of this woe, it says, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Now think of that image for a second. The, the, the very things that you have stolen are gonna announce your theft. Now you could think of it literally or figuratively, it's up to you. That the, the things, these inanimate objects are actually going to cry out and say, you stole this and tell other people that. Or it is just so obvious that everything else doesn't quite match except for these really nice things and you don't have the funds for the nice things so how do they get here? And so you kind of get this. What it's saying is that you're going to be found out. Right? Those who operate like that will be found out. Woe number three. The violence for selfish fame in verse 12, 13, and 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire? And nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Now, as we study through this, we have to understand culturally where they're at. It is very common in this culture for kings and military and soldiers to celebrate deaths, to celebrate killings. And not only to celebrate, but almost to have a bit of showmanship for what they do. And so you, you can go, as you study history, you look through different historical things, you often find stories or inscriptions on walls of kings of what they would do to people. And almost as a way of like, look what I have done, now you will know who I am. And there, I want to read just an inscription that I found. Uh, they found this on a king's wall, written it out, and said, I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me, draped their skins over the pile of corpses, some I spread out within the pile. Some I erected on stakes upon the pile. I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. 
Right? This, this is a celebratory story that he's telling, writes it on his wall so that others will know what he has done. Now, it may be easy to think, well, this is kind of a barbaric thing. Like, it doesn't really work like this anymore. Life's not really like that. People are not that barbaric that they're celebrating death or torturing people. And kind of you'll think, like, this, is, this one doesn't really apply to us. But it does. When I was in Cambodia, I, uh, I went to something called tool slang. Tool slang was a former high school that was turned into a prison and torture center. They would bring in people, and, and some of the most inhumane things were done to these people. Torture, prison, beatings, just awful stories. And I, I toured this museum, and you just feel this just kind of heartache for these people who were basically just being used for a, a tyrannical leader to show off. 12,000 people were killed in this prison. Now, this isn't hundreds of years ago. This is in the 1970s. Right? It, it just about 40 to 50 years ago, this same mindset was still very prevalent. I'm going to kill a bunch of people. I want to show you my power. I want to show you the power I have. I want to show you how strong I am. I want to show you how selfish I am. I want you to know my name. And we see that, and we hear that. But then you see the response that God gives about those who kill so that their name will be known. And he says to him in verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Listen to that inline. As the waters cover the sea. Right, his name will be known through all of this. In the end, there is comfort in knowing that God's name, God's glory, will be known through all of this. Not the name of some brutal, tyrannical leader. Not the name of some king who's celebrating some gruesome deaths. Not the name of soldiers who are counting, putting tally marks on the wall, how many people they've killed. It will not be their name that is known. It will be God's name that is known. The fourth one we see in verses 15, 16, and 17. It says, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities all who dwell in them. Now we live in a culture where not just alcohol causes people to become naked for sinful pleasure, but, but money as well. Right? In, in fact, 43% of Americans now say that pornography is morally acceptable. 43%. Human trafficking is the fastest growing organized crime activity in the United States, making almost $32 billion a year. There are an estimated 10 million child prostitutes worldwide. So these are some very sick, sinful, selfish things. This one's really painful to hear. Right? Because you, you think about this, and it's just people viewing other people as sexual objects. That whatever makes me feel good, I'm going to go and get. We're not talking about possessions anymore. We're talking about people. Right? Nearly every book in the Bible warns against sexual morality. 
Why? Because sexual immorality leads to disease, rape, perversion, pornography, child molestation, addiction, sexual exploitation. Right? It, it, this is this dangerous thing behind it. You know, sexuality, when used in its correct sense, is good, is useful, is beneficial. But when it's not, it's, it's dangerous. It's hurtful. Right? Someone compared it to electricity. When you use electricity and the way it was intended to be used, it's great. It's beneficial. It's useful. When you don't know what you're doing and you use electricity, it's dangerous. It can be incredibly hurtful. And so as we hear this, as you hear these stats and these words, understand the selfish, the self-centeredness, the selfish nature that is behind this of viewing someone not as a human being, not as a person, but as someone who can give you what you want. And we see the response is, the cup is in the Lord's right hand, will come to you. Utter shame will come upon your glory. Utter shame will come upon your glory. The fifth one, and the final one, is idolatry. Verses 18, 19, and 20. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is holy, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You know, it is it's easy in our culture to look around and think, you know, we don't really struggle with idolatry. We don't have a lot of statues. We don't have a lot of, like, false gods. It's not really something that's prevalent around us. But I want to show you the definition of idolatry. Idolatry is defined as the worship of idols or excessive devotion to or reverence for some person or something. If that is our working definition of idolatry, then I think it's much more common than we think. Right? Then it, our idols in our culture might not be statues that we've built, but maybe it could be success or fame or your glory so that your name is known. Or, or maybe it's busyness or your work. You want people to know what it is that you've done or know what it is that you've accomplished. And that is how you live your life. Or maybe it's materialism. You want people to know what you have or know how much of what you have. So maybe, maybe those are not necessarily the idol. Maybe those are the acts of worship. Maybe the idol is actually us. And maybe that, that statue that we're missing, that statue that we don't have, is maybe it's the mirror. Right? That when you live your life and you are the reason of why you do things, you are the reason of why you say things. Your, your name, your glory, and that's what you're after. Maybe you are your own idol. Maybe that's, that's how we live our life. It may be, maybe it's even possible that you use Christianity as idolatry. Now, wh what do you mean by that? Well, think about this. If we go back to how we define those earlier, about that, that savior of suburbia, 
right? Only calling upon God when you need him. If you need something, that's when you'll ask. And you don't have a life that's fully devoted to Christ, a life that's devoted to worshiping and loving God and only looking to him when you need something, that could be considered a form of idol worship. Because you're not really a devoted follower, you're just using God. And so when we only worship God, when we want something or when we need something, that says a lot about our life. That we live a life that is focused on us. And so we read through these warnings and we see there's a similar tone about how you live your life. About the purpose behind your life, the purpose behind why you do what you do, why you say what you say, why you think what you think. That there is a purpose. And either that purpose is to make God's name known or to make your name known. And so as we wrestle through this, I want you to think of outcomes of living by faith. What would it look, if you are someone who is living by faith, what would it look like in your life? Well, first of all, you would find the promises and attributes of God would give you comfort and confidence. As we read through Habakkuk, you're going to see that. That because of what God has done, it's comforting to Habakkuk. And we see that in our own life. God has done some amazing things in our life. And that should provide comfort and confidence that God is who he says he is. In Habakkuk, we see that God is faithful. God is just. God is there. God is hearing our prayers. That should give us confidence to know that God is who he says he is. That if you're living by faith, your goal should not be for your name to be known, but God's name to be known. And that should influence the way that you live your life. Influence the way you communicate with people. Influence the way you talk to people. Influence the way you think about people. Influence the way you act. It is either going to be motivated by you want God to be known in this situation, or you want you to be known in this situation. And so throughout Habakkuk, throughout what we read, we see these warnings. Those who are fueled by self-centered selfishness, that selfish nature, it doesn't last. What are you really after then? And so I, I would encourage you to hear those warnings. Hear those warnings to the Babylonians. Hear those, those warnings about selfishness. Those warnings about that attitude of, I'm going to do whatever I can to get whatever I want. And how you treat people because of it. Willing to hurt people. Willing to use people. Willing to ridicule people so that your name can be known. Is it worth it? Right? What is the end goal? If that's how you live your life, using people to get what you want, what is your real end goal? At some point, at the end of each of those woes, they were found out. It caught up with them. It hurt them. They got what was coming to them. And so I would encourage you, hear the warnings. Hear the warnings in Habakkuk. Think about your life. Whose name do you want to make known? Yours or God's? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you 
that you are who you are, that you are a God who hears our prayers, who responds to our prayers. You are a God who is active. You are a God who is living. You are a God who is working in our lives. Lord, we are thankful for that. God, give us the courage, the power to get rid of those, those selfish ideas, that selfish mentality, those things that try and make us famous. Lord, let our goal in life to make your name known. That we live our life serving you, worshiping you, devoted to you, and not be distracted by selfish desires, by sinful desires, and not use people to get what we want, but we serve people so they can see your love. Lord, help us to live a life like that. We are so thankful for your example and how you continue to do that. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In your name we pray, amen.